Another penultimate episode of The Sopranos in the bag. Did it follow the pattern? What did we think of it? We're going to break it all down. This is The Sopranos Podcast Season 4, Episode 12, In the Valleys. She's becoming a wonderful woman, Carm. A smart, beautiful, independent woman that you created. Isn't that what you dreamed about? That's a quote from Tony in Season 4, Episode 12 of The Sopranos, entitled Eloise, written by Terrence Winter and directed by James Heyman. So right off the bat, what first caught me is, as a guy who's always looking at story structure, season structure, plot structure, this is a major departure for The Sopranos in that most of the penultimate episodes so far in Seasons 1, 2, and 3 had the big explosion. And the last hour was almost sort of a denouement or a come down or the fallout of the big explosion. Whereas this is a episode that ratchets the tension up to a 10 and a half to the point where you feel like you're hanging right at the precipice and something big is still yet to come. What that is, we'll have to watch in the finale. But as far as Eloise go, I thought this was an incredible episode, particularly uh, th- this one comes down so much to the performance of Edie Falco. I just have to give so much credit. What she's done in this episode is so hard to do. I'm Chris D'Amato. I'm Paul Mancini. And I'm Jordan Hugh. First reactions on Eloise. Uh, You know, season four really is a whole different animal, isn't it? It's like like I don't even know how to watch it. It's like watching season four of The Sopranos is reteaching me how to watch television, like in some way. It's just I'm not used to it at all. And uh, I do consider myself a writer like I do write, but I mostly write, you know, poetry or short stories or like narrative fiction, basically. So I, I don't know anything about screenwriting and I, I I leave it to you two for that. I know, you know, this is this is really your area. Uh, I do not know why you do an episode like Eloise, which is a strange thing to say, because I also think this is one of the series best episodes, <laughs> but I don't know I don't understand the structure here, but I love it anyway. I, I, I That's like the paradox that's going on for me is just like all of the tensions have been quieted from other plots in this season. Yeah. So Christopher has gone to rehab for his drug issue. Janice and Bobby are together. She got him. Great. As you said, Chris, in, in the opening here, it seems like we should be ratcheting up tension and maybe there should be even the big payout now here in episode 12. And then we would have some good falling action into maybe a lead in for season five in the finale. But we don't get that here. What we get instead is this really elegant, sophisticated and disturbing episode that is tonally really bizarre and gorgeous. And it is not something that lives only to serve the narrative, which is what usually an episode 12 does. It's very much a part of what the season is what the plots are building towards or it's the resolution of that plot. Instead, we kind of just get this um, really perplexing, beautiful episode of television that I don't really know how to interpret as series television. Yeah. You stole the word elegant out of my brain, Jordan. Well said. I agree with both of you. I think it's a beautiful episode and it's a paradox. It doesn't fit in this slot. If you take the first three seasons as the setup, The penultimate episode is where the fireworks happen. Not only does this episode not do fireworks, I'd argue this is an especially passive-aggressive episode Mm -hmm. of The Sopranos. 
like you can't pin anybody down. You have to dig through layers of 19th century literature to get at what people are lying about. It's fucking insane. Yeah. Um, yeah, and now you guys are also right. There is a an unfolding tension. Are Carmela and Fiorio going to get down to flooring right now? Is Fiorio going to throw Tony into the propeller? No, these things don't pay off. So what are the big dramatic moments? Shitty dinner at Meadows and shittier tea at the plaza. Again, you have to dig through what people are lying about. In terms of fireworks, what's the one death in the episode? This mean old biddy that Polly smothers <laughs> in a weirdly hilarious scene that I'm sure brings us back to what Jordan already stated. This episode is elegant, it's funny, and it's disturbing. I agree with you guys. There's a lot going on. I'm sure 20 years ago, I was very disappointed by this episode. Again, no fireworks. Where were my, where were my fun moments, my big dramatic death or something like that? I'm, I'm immensely impressed with this episode. Like yeah. you guys, I'm moved by it. I'm stunned by it. I'm disturbed by it. I'm very worried about Carmela at the end. And I think everybody involved involved is to be commended. I agree with you, Chris. I think especially Edie Falco. Yeah, I, I just wanted to add uh, this episode to me, the, the the best stuff in it, and it's it's all good. The best stuff in it for me is almost like this um, Richard Yatesian drama of just like horrors of the mundane kind of thing going on. Mm. And I, I'm amazed that in a show that can be so explosive, that that is the stuff that I yearn for and that I love to watch. This is a great episode. It's delicious. And and. Again, I'm going to harp on this several moments as we break down the beats here, but Edie Falco's acting is just so exquisite here. To have all of this brimming beneath the surface and to be passive-aggressively misdirecting jealousy and these feelings of loss onto the people around her while still trying to hold it all together as the matriarch of this family and the woman of this house just defies logic how well she did it. Uh, it it's just wonderful. It's such an exquisite dance she was able to perform. Let's get into it. We start off with, uh, I would call this a D plot on the episode. We touched down maybe twice on this. And this has been another thing throughout the whole season is Junior's trial. We're ramping up toward the end here. The prosecuting attorney who's just dripping with charisma is uh, giving, <laughs> give... <laughs> he's just, he's just like, and you'll find evidence of Junior Soprano ordering murder like you and I order a coffee. He's like he's telling he's telling Stephen Wright jokes. But anyway, he's uh, <laughs> he's giving this uh, final breakdown and uh, Bobby is sizing up the jury. Who are we going to get to? This is the mental uh, acuity test, whatever. Didn't go the way they wanted it to. So Bobby's sizing him up. He spots a nice looking fella, sees a wedding ring. All right, maybe we have something here. Chris, could I say something briefly about the storytelling here? Yeah. Jordan mentioned screenwriting. I think there's just some really nice screen storytelling dynamics going on here. As you said, the prosecutor dripping with charisma. God, I was going to sleep. But it <laughs> communicates one very important thing. This is a closing statement, which means crunch time. And the only other thing you need, because the storytelling is really good and they know the audience is coming along, is for Bobby to be scanning the jury, sees the guy with the wedding ring. No, we don't know what's going to happen yet. I think we can infer not good. This yeah. is great. It only takes 30 seconds and we're in. 
Yeah, yeah. Excellent visual storytelling because it's not about what's being said, really. The prosecutor's not telling us anything we don't already know about Junior, but watching Bobby, watching the camera work, spotting the ring, him kind of having that, yes, that's the that's that's our guy, whatever we're going to do, he's the one. So, yeah, great shit. I like the little shot of the nurse who was at the doctor in episode one that Junior was all flirty with, sitting there in her suit, a witness for the prosecution. And cut to the Soprano house. AJ, Billy Bud Paper. He starts reading about this uh, mean drill sergeant. <laughs> and Furio comes in and actually comes in. We've had several instances this season where Carm invites him in and he has said no. And he comes in. Everybody, she's all smiles. She's so happy. It's like a beautiful painting in a way. You got a young man there. Pursuing his education, she's dressed in this flowery housewife suit thing, and she's putting scones up on the plate and smiling at Furio. It's it's all it's all delight until Tony sulks down the stairs, ruining the mood. AJ reading off his Billy Bud paper. They have a little conversation before they get into the kitchen, and I'm going to mention this specifically because this has now been something that has come up so many times this season. It's not an accident. But Furio mentions there he's building his in-law house there in the back of his, of his house for his mother to come over, and there's a leak in the foundation. Yet another instance of some kind of moisture or rot in the foundation of a building or a house. Rising damp. Rising damp. Yeah, this is not the first reference we've had. The Soprano, and that's why this season feels so introspective, really, because, yeah, the New York shit, it's good, it's interesting. That's not a criticism on that, but really... The rot is inside the house. That's where the real trouble is has been brewing this entire time. So I just think that's a very cool detail. Carmela is going to come over. Her parents are contractors. She's so excited to come over and deal with this. And Tony wants to take Carm on a trip. She wants no part of it. Furio gets disgusted, walks outside. And Tony <laughs> makes this remark about needing to get away the horse I and mean, deep down i think that's why you cut your hair <laughs> yeah woof any thoughts on this first sequence there's so much going on underneath all of this it's hard to break down subtextually but yeah it's very rich um so first we have this billy bud reference which is um I, I am not familiar with billy bud i've never read it i actually i just looked up enough to be able to interpret this right so i guess in this particular scene what aj is reading corresponds directly to what we see there's the description of the handsome young sailor, so that's supposed to be Furio, and then the, the curmudgeonly officer is Tony. Um, so this is our first uh, Billy Bud scene that's going to come back quite a bit in this episode. And then we have, you know, Furio is still fanning these flames of desire for Carmela. There's the scones there. Uh, she would love for him to have one, but of course, Tony takes one. He takes a big bite out of it. He grossly puts it back down on the plate. <laughs> Seems very like not grateful or appreciative of it. Mm. Uh, whereas if, if Furio had actually taken that bite, which he denies himself, um, he might have loved it. He leaves amidst, amidst their dispute, not wanting to think about Tony taking away Carmel on this vacation, but also not wanting to uh, kind of be upset by this. Of course, Carmela doesn't want to go away with Tony. She wants to go away with Furio. And Tony, just incredibly selfish here, just, uh, oh, I, I know you're upset about my horse, which is why you cut your hair. <laughs> you know, Tony just, uh, he's so, just doesn't know what's going on here. Mm. He's totally oblivious. And what's really interesting here is that the reason Carm doesn't, yes, she wants to go away with Furio. 
but really, the reason she is saying no to this trip is so that she can go to Furio's house and work on the construction. Like, that is what is keeping her from a top-shelf, first-class, across-the-board vacation with Tony, is this construction date she has with Furio, which would bore me to tears. But as we will see throughout this episode... I wrote in my notes later on in a scene that met, uh, Carmela is really alive at this point for these moments with Furio. That's what it feels like. So we cut to this next scene where they're driving down a road in New Jersey. And I'm going to mention this road for a specific reason. Paul, you mentioned this to me and I looked and holy shit, they're driving down Allwood Road in Clifton. Now, why I'm going to make a deal out of that. They are 100% driving down Allwood Road in Clifton. I'm not going to give my exact location away for the safety and security of my my home and and, and domicile here, but that's that street and that particular stretch of street they are driving down is like I was looking for my house in the background. That's how close it was. Okay, so these guys were right in my neighborhood. That and I've never noticed that before. So thank you, Paul. It's like oh, there's my gas station. Oh my god, there's my oh my god, they're on my they're like driving next to my street. So <laughs> I thought that was very cool. It's a good road and a lot of good people drive down it and work on it. <laughs> Damn straight. Damn straight. <laughs> That's right. Thank you. <laughs> Tony is griping and in, in a really this is the I don't want to say that this is the kind of thing that guys gripe about their wives, but it's a very normal Tony Soprano complaining about Carmela scene, but it has an added gravitas to it because Furio is madly in love with Carmela at this point, And Tony calls her a quote, moody bitch. And you can see Furio just, his, he just clenches his jaw and looks away. He can't even, he just doesn't want to listen to this anymore. And so that tension is building. Well, I think that relates to something Jordan mentioned, the horrors of the mundane. I don't want to be dismissive of this, but Tony saying that his wife even is a moody bitch could, in many other contexts on The Sopranos, be the show and the culture's run-of-the-mill misogyny. Right. But in this, as Jordan pointed out, Furio's hand is gripping the steering wheel, and we're getting like a murderous feeling. So again, not only is the tension building, but the way they're building it. It's great. Yeah. Cut to the golf course. Tony visited Carmine Jr. We were introduced to this character. Looks like we're going to be getting more of old Carmine Jr., which is great because I think he's wildly entertaining. And now that it's not a spoiler, I'm so happy he's on the show. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) And he's talking. Very, very funny character. Yeah. He's talking with Johnny Sack. Total debacle. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) The the props are really something here. So fun. And uh, they're they're kind of they're, they're knocking heads together, trying to figure out how they're going to change Carmine's mind. He's being a little hard headed about this HUD scam and the forty percent. So it seems at first like Tony, like Johnny, and little Carmine are in lockstep here. And then uh, Carmine shows up. I love the line: you "Put on your sunblock." It's just such a fatherly. Line. My dad still bugs me about putting on sunblock. It's it's such a fatherly line. Immediately puts Carmine Jr. in a more junior submissive role here. Carmine, the boss, the dad, he's he's stepped in. And the dynamic changes uh, once. <laughs> the first, they start talking to Carmine. And I love the part where he takes a very horrible shot and then says, you distracted me. I'm taking a mulligan. <laughs> <laughs> Johnny looks like 
All right, that's not fair, but okay. <laughs> that's like the look on his face. And Carmine's trying to talk to him. He's a uh, an old school guy, pop, very allegorical. Yeah, uh, just <laughs> brainless, brainless. The second is what they called him, I believe. Yeah, that yeah. Is, yeah title well earned. <laughs> and then the second, Carmine says, hard headed as he is, I'd have been proud to call him my own son. Carmine's entire Carmine Jr.'s entire demeanor toward Tony changes. I don't know, a bit of a poseur, you ask me. He likes to walk the walk. <laughs> and Johnny yeah, is given think, yeah. thinks of you as a, a friend, right? And yep. not as uh as someone he's working with. Exactly, I mean, he yeah. he he completely flipped. Yep. So this was um this was not good. This is mm-hmm. uh this is part of the one of the bigger themes in the episode too, which is just about, you know, relationships with your children. It's about jealousy, it's about perception. Um, this this plays right into that, which we'll get we'll get more when we talk about Meadow, but this is this is very parallel to that. Yes, something is happening in this episode with the filial relationship and a sense of duty, but something in the familiarity, maybe breeding contempt, certainly jealousy. A lot is happening with that. This scene is really funny. Dramatically, it's crazy because little Carmine basically torpedoes what looked like was coming to be in some settlement. Uh, I love that he says, hey, Tony's a bit of a poser as he chomps on a cigar and tries to look tough, which Tony does... (laughs) which Tony does without trying. Yeah. Um, and I, there's something with the white gloves too, that seem like a parallel to the women at the plaza. But anyway, mm. great scene, great setup for this whole story. And definitely as Jordan mentioned, getting into this passive aggressive thing with jealousy and um, some misdirected fire, even some misdirected yeah. anger. Yeah. That's a great connection. That's a great connection, Paul, that uh, white gloves and the, the later scene we get between Carmel, it's 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 all about yeah, good good pull there yeah we have a father son we have a mother daughter there's jealousy at the center of it very nice I love Vince Curatola's glare he is by and large I don't want I mean look he beat a guy and then pissed on him earlier this season so when I say nice it's all relative but he's one of our nicer gangsters I mean like he's one of the guys you would imagine under most circumstances you can have a rational conversation with and walk out alive but. There are these little moments Johnny gives us, and Vince Curatola is such a dynamic actor. I just love that last glare he's giving Carmine Jr. Like, you've, you, do you have any idea what you've just done, you stupid fuck, is what's under those angry eyes. It's really good. Yeah. He's yeah. also, there's there's been this running feeling that Johnny Sack is uh, frustrated. This is, well, it, it's certainly no secret on the show, right? that he feels like he has to cater to a boss that doesn't always make the best decisions and that the heir to the throne of uh, the show makes a huge joke out of the fact <laughs> is, is horrifying, right? <laughs> that's the future that's coming down the pike for New York is, is really bad. Yeah. So we do sympathize with Johnny sack, even though he is a dangerous character. Yep. Cut to Furio's house. Uh, these two are on a date. This is a date. As far as I'm concerned, I know they make a date to do some flooring, uh, the next day, but th- this is might as well be they might as well be sitting over a candlelit dinner. The way they're looking at each other, they're talking about such ma- mundane things, but there's so much going on. They're boiling underneath their skin. They want to like that. One of the most impressive Edie Falco moments in this episode is when they're talking, and he says to her, "You're a special woman," and she's just staring up at him, and without changing her expression as if she wants to just jump him right there. She just says, have you thought about flooring yet? (laughs) That is a magic moment. My hunch is yes. 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> but I mean, there's not much else to say about this scene except the fact that these two are acting the shit out of it. They very clearly, this is so good. It's all in the subtext. On paper, they're talking about this construction. They're going to make a date to go by Floretels. I would love to go with you there. These two have a nice chemistry on screen, and this is great. This is good stuff. Uh, obviously not good in the sense that nothing good is going to come of this, but still, great shit. It's why you watch TV. They bring over uh, some of these construction guys, The uh, I think, connected to Carmela's dad, and I think they're from Italy or they're recent immigrants, evocatively Italian, Coming in, one of them, I think, says something in Italian, and the other one says, speak English for Christ's sake. I thought in a way he was kind of talking to the characters, like, please, oh, yeah. <laughs> actually we... actually communicate what I you like feel. That. I like that you know? a lot. That's yeah. great. This is also not the only time this episode that a the sound of a buzzsaw is happening underneath a scene. This is used again later in the restaurant. So it's, it's another way of so, almost mocking the fact that there's no violence in this episode, but also still keeping that tension there. These scenes that are very quiet and docile, Tony and Silvio meeting the pragmatist Johnny Sack. You know, no one's going to die in that scene, but still there's a saw going on in the background. So this is all good stuff, all very deliberate, very well crafted. Here's a fun little scene. The three old ladies in the car. <laughs> it was nice to see this uh, plot come back around. Yeah. 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 We're not forgetting about Paulie's mom and Cookie and Min and, and the ladies of Green Grove Retirement Community. If only Livia were still alive, maybe she'd have been in this car. Oh, no. Don't. don't. <laughs> oh, my God. The only way to make it worse. <laughs> so they're driving, they're yakking, talking about singers and the old days and. They see a handicapped spot a little bit closer to the building. Min pulls out and boom. They act like they just got sideswiped on Route 3, but it's <laughs> they are older. You want to be careful. Certain injuries at that age can really set you back. So I get it. But uh, yeah, the, the, the there's a car accident. We're going to come back to this shortly. Cut to the casino. This is I, perhaps one thread or location of character or set of characters that we're taking out of the episode Christopher that have come back. Right, this uh, is still Chief Doug Smith's casino that we yeah. have returned to. Yeah, yeah, the Mohunk tribe, and they're there with Peo. There's a big, there's a bit of a few guys there. Patsy, Silvio, they they bounce out early, and Tony Furio and Brian Camerato are there having a good night. Tony's having a nice drink. He's dancing with a girl. More death glares here. Furio staring yeah. at Tony with the blonde. I love how debauched cousin Brian has become. I, I wrote, I wrote <laughs> they've kind of ruined his life. <laughs> I wrote here, Brian has a problem. <laughs> they've absolutely they they've ruined proper pretty boy cousin Brian, who has now become just a debauched asshole, just a debauched ass making an ass of himself. Yeah, Paulie's homecoming party. He falls asleep on the Bing stage with no pants. He's he's here at this casino. Yeah, he's this guy's ready to party all the time. He loves really, it. Really like that actor, uh, Matthew Del Negro is yeah. his name. And actually, this past spring, Matthew Del Negro visited my high school. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. He, so in his uh, a career, he also has the opportunity to come speak to young people about the future of their acting careers or about his career. So he came to speak to my theater class students and a number of the business class students as well. And I, I have to say, the, the nicest guy. He spoke for about an hour and a half, which was really generous of yeah. him. And uh, 
really spoke a lot about his time on The Sopranos, which was really cool. Kids took pictures with him. And I, I think we forget this uh, because we're older, but young folks, teenagers um, are very aware of The Sopranos series as a cultural artifact and as a mm. show that some of them have gone back and watched, particularly during the pandemic mm. of 2020. This was a trendy show to sort of rewatch. So when he came in, there were already people in my little audience of students that were like, oh, Cousin Brian. Yeah. from the Sopranos. They, oh, they, that's amazing. And he looks the same. He's recognizable on site. So that was it was a really cool thing for me to see, particularly as a co-host of this podcast. What an awesome experience. Did you get a chance to say hi to him at all? Or I sure did. No, I, I spoke with him at length for, for quite a while. Um, and he was, again, just a, the, the nicest guy and only had wonderful things to say about his time uh, on the show. So that was it was really cool. Oh, that's awesome. What a cool anecdote that I'm so glad that got to happen. Yeah, we talked uh, earlier in the series just about like, oh, hey, who has a Soprano story? Have you met these guys? And uh, Chris, by far, you had met the most of them. But I, yeah, this was, this is now I have a Soprano story. He actually came to where I worked. I didn't have to do anything. <laughs> That's yeah, great. It's great. Oh, so cool. Cut to the hospital. Pauly is <laughs> coming in to visit his ma. And, uh, Paulie, oh, my own. And then Minnie with the passive, a lot of passive aggressive comments in this episode. Uh, geez, Nucci, you were fine for the last three hours. <laughs> <laughs> Just such a such a nasty jibe there. Paulie gets mad at Min, implies that she shouldn't be behind the wheel at her age. <laughs> Paulie just doesn't mince words. It's none of your goddamn business. We're talking about my ma here. She's not going to drive you no more. And she gives the absolute sweetest possible delivery of, but we have tickets to the producers. Uh, that make Lily and I's heart spoon for her every time. Yes, lovely. And, and then Paulie offers to drive them himself, which yes. I'm sure will be fine. Yeah, that's going to go great. Only good things are going to come of it. And, uh, you know, folks, just a little time capsule note. But when this was happening, the producers was the hot ticket in town. Think, sure. think Hamilton like three or four years ago. That's what the producers, uh, you know, was during 2002. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, horse and buggies don't count. <laughs> 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 this combative relationship between Paulie and Min. I mean, I, I would watch a sitcom of it. Truly just Paulie. I would watch a sitcom of just. Paulie shuttling around the old ladies at Green Grove when he's not doing shit for Tony. It's just so funny. Anyway. <laughs> this is, uh, I mean, overall, what a, this is a great Paulie episode. Like, yeah. really terrific. Yeah, yeah. He shines in an episode where it might have not been easy to shine as a C. I guess this would be a C plot. But it's also been building for a while. I'm, I'm, where, where this Paulie plot ends is really awesome. The way they tie it all in. Agreed. Yeah. We get to meet Meadow's new roommates. She's got an apartment. She's moved out of the Columbia dorms. This lady, Alex, and this fella, Colin. Colin's mother's there. They make time in the episode for this fella's mother to say that Meadow's really going places. She's special. Not the first time we're going to hear about Meadow's potential and heap praise upon her for her her cooking, her caring, her volunteering, her independence. You mentioned uh, several episodes ago, Jordan, that Meadow, when we first see her at the Bronx Law Center, there's a big dearth between where she was at the beginning of this season, end of season three, and now there's definitely some growing up that's happened in a big, noticeable way. And here she is taking care of these uh, these folks at this apartment. 
Yeah, we'll get into this more when we have the dinner scene when yeah. when Tony has joined them for their version of Sunday dinner. But um, uh, yes, Meadow is is certainly prospering. It would do her a little better to remember where she comes from, but uh, she's she's doing so well. We we can't help but be proud of her. This is going to create an issue for Carmela as we go through the episode because because Carmela is feeling so unfulfilled. There's she can't help but feel jealous of meadow and that's that's evident from the first time we visit this thread this will become richer through the episode it underlines how difficult carmela's emotional position is i think that in this scene here brief as it is i think the young man's mother colin his mother is so clearly impressed with meadow uh even when carmela just i think to be polite gives a broad compliment to colin mother's busted over and says yes but She's going places, indeed places that Carmela dreams about. But Carmela is rightfully proud of Meadow as well. And even, I thought, in a moving way, at the end of the scene, is kind of showing that maternal comfort as Meadow shares some um, emotional stuff about this new boyfriend. Uh, it, it just complicates it in such a rich way. But And we'll get into more of it when, as Jordan says, when the dinner scene comes which is when I will talk about one of my favorite books. So, Billy Bud, is it actually one of your favorite books, Paul, or is that a start? Was that sarcasm? <laughs> no, it absolutely is. I read it during the pandemic. Uh, he's not the ship's florist, but that's one of the best jokes in the episode. <laughs> so, right. we'll we'll get there. Yeah, we'll get to Billy Bud. I'm glad at least one of us has read it. That one got by me too, and I wasn't one of these kids who. I took some shortcuts in high school, but not in English and literature. That was the stuff I really enjoyed. But in all the great books, I read a lot of the classics, Lord of the Flies, The Great Expectations, 1984, all that great shit. But for some, somehow Billy Budd got by me too. I don't know how that happened. But maybe I didn't take Mr. Wegler's English class. Moving on here. This is when I wrote Brian Has a Problem. <laughs> Just dragged over with by these two women to this seat. This idea of this helicopter comes up. I really enjoy this. This is a comedic beat, but when she brings up the helicopter, and clearly that's reserved for clients who drop a little bit more than fifteen thousand dollars, and this guy now has to call Chief uh, Chief Doug Smith to authorize this helicopter ride. And he's like, "I know, I know, I know." <laughs> Just <laughs> and Brian is all excited. Uh, so it's given the what is it, Flight of the Valkyries. <laughs> and yeah, they're going to helicopter out of there. Furio is withdrawn, quiet, glaring daggers at Tony. Really nice transition, wasn't it? In the scene before, Carmela says to Meadow, men have to move at their own pace. Oh, it's amazing, isn't it? Cut to Tony, like dragging Brian uh, over to the couch and throwing him down. Um, yes, you guys are totally right. This guy's been completely corrupted at some level, I think, Furio might see a possible future in that and foregoes it. That, that's just one reading. I love how all of this is also complicated. I should have mentioned this when we talked about the beat before when they're at the casino and Silvio and Patsy leave. This particular beat that they're coming to is happening. The story is complicated by the fact that Tony clearly did not want to go home. The other guys were like, it's getting late. And Tony's like, yeah. dude, I'm here getting wasted. And there's a beautiful blonde who asks me no questions and gives me no shit on my arm. Why would I go home to Carmela? Th mm. That's what that's what leads us to this moment. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I would also like to just um, mention that in that scene that Paul just referenced before, when Carmela sort of reassures Meadow that some men have to move at their own pace, what they're actually discussing in that moment is that this guy Finn, who Meadow's been seeing, and this is really the first episode we get any sense of Finn, uh, this guy Finn has not told Meadow that he loves her yet, and that is what Meadow is uh, kind of concerned about. Of course, Furio has not told Carmela that he loves her either. Yeah, that is the other man that must move at his own pace, as Paul has mentioned as well. So this is uh, this episode is like the parallels are that when I spoke about the episode being elegant, that that is what I mean, that they can take these seemingly different plots and just play them uh, so, so closely to one another. It's really for this reason, it's one of my favorite episodes. Yeah. Sorry about the mess. Brian clearly puked in that poor limo driver's car. I've done some Ubering in my day. I've dealt with vomit. It's one of the hor- most horrible things that can happen to you <laughs> as, an, as any kind of professional driver is somebody of pukes course. in your car. The yeah. smell is very hard to get out. It's not a, not a cheap clean. But Tony, and then you're, you're out of service for the rest of that night. That's also true. Yeah. Yeah. So, but Tony hands him probably a substantial amount of cash. That hasn't happened to me, but... Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so uh, and Brian is sick. He pukes again. Oh, old faithful! They these guys are fu- they're bombed out of their fucking minds. So naturally, the idea is to go take a piss next to a whirling helicopter propeller. They do that, and this is it. This is a big, big moment. It's one that for first time viewers always is like. <gasps> And Furio just grabs Tony. And for a split second, if Furio really made that choice, it was over. Tony had nothing to do. Oh, what the fuck are you doing? He was not ready for this. Furio absolutely could have tossed him into the propeller and then thought better of it. You're standing too close. Gaslights drunk Tony just enough to think, holy shit, was I about to fall into that thing? And then they stumble off into the helicopter. And what a sad shot. Federico Castelluccio does a great job in what might be his uh, one of his last looks down on the Northeast United States before taking back off for Italy in another day or two. And uh, he's just miserable. But I love the look on his face as the helicopter pulls up and out. That's it. That's the last we see of Furio this episode. I had a, a moment to think. And remember, I don't know the series as well as the two of you. And I actually, I don't know what becomes of Furio beyond this, if anything. I, I did have a moment to think of his sort of immigrant experience and not that I'm an especially patriotic person, but I was like, what a miserable look this man saw of America mm. and what he must have thought of us. And the show touches it, but it's also just, um, you know, even just beyond Carmela, which I guess was the only beautiful thing he saw when he was here, I was like, he only ever dealt with like the ugliest part of our country in terms mm. of organized crime and how horrible people could be to people and then also uh not to knock new jersey new jersey has many beautiful parts of it but he spent a lot of time in some some of the ugly places i you know i'm sure he'll miss carmela i i don't know that he'll miss america great point i love that i agree and i think there's something else that's quite complex and sad about this particular exit It could be, I'm not sure, it's just one reading, one way that I've thought of this scene, is that in some way, perhaps even because he's come to love Carmela so much, it has softened something in Furio where he won't be 
so ruthless in the way that some of the other guys in this episode double down on. But because he won't kill Tony, the other choice is that he has to leave. This means that he, he abandons Carmela. That's what happens and leads her down into this rabbit hole of self-reflection. So in some way, even though he's doing the right thing, it's the, it's the most horrible thing in this particular moment for this other character. I, I'm, I'm kind of at sixes and sevens about it. Maybe it's paradoxical, as Jordan said, uh, but it is, it's profound. I find this whole sequence profound. And in typical Sopranos fashion, there's profundity, and there's also kind of graphic lowbrow imagery, like the two guys vying for Carmela's affection literally have their dicks out pissing. I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah, an actual pissing contest. Very good, Paul. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Paul, you're on fire today. What got into you? Paul is always on fire. I feel like I'm always trying to catch up to Paul. No, Paul, I know. Paul always, got, always, got, always gets the deep cuts. I don't know. Paul's a little bit of a posoy, you ask me. Yeah. His <laughs> turf, his, you know, his appraisal. <laughs> Believe me, folks, it's all love on this podcast, but when Paul and I get drunk and have dinner together, I, he always chokes me and I tell him he was always a little bastard. <laughs> Yeah, that are we up to that scene yet? We're not. No, no, Man. we're not. I, boy, I, w- I wish we were. Hurry up and get to that scene. <laughs> Tony's hung over like hell. Furio's 40 minutes late to pick him up. Carmela's in the spot where she normally would be grilling Tony about who he was out with. Asks, was he out with someone last night? Very interesting. If Tony were even a little bit onto this at all, he would have <laughs> caught that feel like a more perceptive, plugged in, attentive husband would have caught that, but that's part of the problem here, isn't it? He takes a sip of the coffee after making her get up to make it for him and says, I'm going back to bed. Furio comes, don't wake me. Oh, okay. Guess I won't. And the second he the second his foot leaves view as he's heading up the stairs, boom, phone up, calls Furio's. It's a justified call if he has a caller ID. At this time, you had caller ID or you didn't. Because, oh, Tony's calling for his driver, but she doesn't leave a message. She hangs up. There's concern. Carmela is crossing the line into concern here. Like, oh, is everything okay? When Meadow calls a moment later, she runs to the phone as if, and then, oh, hi. So much so that the disappointment is evident when Meadow hears it. And this is when I wrote, I mentioned this earlier, but this is when I wrote in my notes that she is alive for these moments with Furio. Her daughter calls and she can't muster up enough excitement so that she <laughs> can have a nice conversation and invite her to dinner. Meadow, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, this this is a tremendous Carmela episode because in many ways it pays off the entire series to this point for her where we have seen Carmela constantly taken for granted or mistreated or sidelined by the other three members of her household, especially Tony. And um, you realize, Chris, just as you said, that that all her hopes and and her dreams of the future, her aspirations, her uh, ideas about romance, about life beyond these four walls, they are uh, all tied up in this guy and everything else loses its flavor if he is gone. And he's not even gone yet. I mean, not officially as of this phone call, but we already see it fading away. Meadow's going to have a Sunday dinner. She wants to do it all herself. Should I bring anything? Bring wine. We only have good wine when parents come, but otherwise Meadow's going to handle the whole thing at the new apartment. Carmela drives by Furio's. She's got a grocery. She's got grocery bags. So there's a plausible reason for her to be out and about in town in Nutley. But 
looks around, looks at herself in the mirror, has an, is anybody watching moment? Am I being seen? And ultimately decides to drive off with the shot of that unfinished in-law apartment Furio was building. She drives off and Tony and Syl meet up with Johnny Sack at Carmine's new restaurant. Look like, looks like it's going to be a nice place, kind of place I'd like to go have dinner. Nice painting on the wall. Is that Carmine in that boat? <laughs> As my dad would say, a real Ginzo joint. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they pour a drink. This is affable considering what's going on. And Johnny's job after the golf incident where Brainless the second ruined everything and caused uh, Carmine to not only <laughs> blow the deal, but probably ruin that golf club, too. Yeah, that was a nice. It seemed to be a nice club. Forty <laughs> percent starting now. Tony and Sill are like, what the fuck? It was we were at 40 percent a week ago. And Johnny's makes the point. Well, no, that was everything. But this is whatever's done is done. This is just 40 percent going forward to which Tony puts on his jacket and simply leaves. That's unacceptable to him. He's not going to bend. He wanted a lower number. Yeah. And the expression on Johnny Sack's face and the way he smokes that cigarette. He was absolutely expecting this response. Yep. He knew it was coming and he doesn't blame Tony for it either. It's not. He doesn't. He, he does not. He's moving pieces. Mm-hmm. Yes. To bring it back to what Chris said a little while ago, and maybe this relates again to this being a pretty passive aggressive episode. I got to give props to Vincent, who has to, in essence, communicate two different things. The one is the plot, which is, or this point in the plot, I'm functionally um, Carmine's underboss, and I have to deliver this news. But he does these little things. It could be the look at the end of the golf scene. In this case, I think he kind of clears his throat after one of his lines. I I had a writing teacher once who said, great writing guides you. And... The writing and Johnny Sack and Vincent Curatola's performance, I think, is really guiding us toward that great scene in the car at the end. So, I don't know, just a shout out to Curatola. He's great. He's great. Curatola's, if I had to pick like three people to take an acting class with or something out of of the show, he might be on that list of people I would want to work with. He just seems like a really smart actor. You've said that before on our show, and I, I totally agree. I think he's um, he's just amazing to watch. There's so much going on in the littlest expression. I, really an actor I greatly admire, Vince Caratola. Really wonderful. Yep. Carmela's coming out of church, and if that coming out of Father Intentola's church weren't enough to churn her stomach, the news she, <laughs> the news she gets on her way out certainly would. Someone else at the church, a real estate agent, says that, that guy, Furio Gunther, Gunther, uh, his house is on the market. Carmela describes it later on in the episode as feeling like she was punched in the gut here. And this is when we get that pullout shot where she goes to Furio's house, looks in the back door, and the camera just slowly zooms out on Carmela's gutted expression as we see this yeah. gutted house. I know the symbolism is very surface and easy to interpret, but I found it so beautiful. Just the empty house that she had such plans for, uh, all the work they did together, helping him to decorate. The whole thing is now empty as her life is now empty. The way the camera pulls back until Carmela, who had, I think she started off taking up like most of the screen or half the screen. By the end, she's just a little dot on the screen. Uh, Really is just a nice artistic shot. Mm. Uh, so sad for her i loved this yeah i agree i really feel for her here it's it's hard not to i don't know and it's not that i want it's not that i had some weird 
fantasy or desire for her to run off with Furio and live happily ever after on the Amalfi coast or whatever the fuck. But like, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's just this, whatever she's looking for, she's just so far from it. It's just sad. Right. Well, look, uh, none of us watching the show are typically rooting against Tony, but we're allowed to be just as complicated as these characters, right? Isn't yeah. that what makes this show is that we as viewers are allowed to have these complicated, beautiful bouquets of emotions that don't typically go together. Mm. Uh, for me as a viewer, this is what makes great series television is where I can feel multiple things at once. And it is the consternation and the perplexity of those emotions kind of crashing into each other that makes me really feel something. Part of me really does want Carmela to run away with Furio and live a life that is fulfilling and that she can be proud of just as much as part of me wants her to stay and to try to help Tony be a better man and maybe redeem him. And also part of me wants her to be just as bad as he is and get revenge. <laughs> I want all these things yeah. and they all churn within me as I watch her. And this is a great actor. This is great writing. This is great series drama. Yes, it is. Hey, that's why we're here, man. That's why we have a popular podcast because we're piggybacking off of this brilliance. <laughs> Riding the coattails to the top, baby. <laughs> New York City, it's time for Sunday dinner, and Tony gets the call from Silvio. You won't believe this. Furio, fucking Zip moved back to Italy, left a message on the Bing answering machine, the answering machine at the Bing at 4.30 in the morning. Just up and left. Goodbye. At least he called. I'm, I'm, I'm amazed he even called. Gone. Just gone. I guess he didn't. I guess he wanted maybe, I don't know, maybe he didn't want Tony to think he was dead for some reason or just. Right. So are we led to believe the timeline is that they had their casino night and Tony went home and Furio started packing up the house that night and hired movers to get him out of here and went home that night. That's crazy. Yeah. Uh, and you can see Carmela is just, she knows already, but it's, it's like, you know, at this point it's rubbing salt in the wound. It's rubbing her nose in the, in what she already knows. And Tony is just not picking up on it. She's another great shot where the trunk of their big SUV has opened and it kind of opens and frames Carmela in the background. The two guys figuring out how to carry the water as usual, completely oblivious mm -hmm. to what's going on with her. This will, this sets up the dinner basically. Enter Finn Detrolio. Finn Detrolio. He's in dental school and this is Meadow's boyfriend. This is this actor. I've seen him in a lot of stuff. This guy, he gets a lot of work. Uh, I can't pinpoint anything in the top of my head, but he's one of these guys. Yeah. You see him on TV a lot. Good looking kid. Yep. Oh, seems nice. Did you guys catch that moment when Tony touches Carmela's shoulder in casual conversation at the top of the scene? And she just like, she, she's like startled by it, like, or, or almost pulling away. I did. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Really tough. Her her energy is just um, so negative in this scene. Just the oh, body yeah. language, everything. It's great. Uh, really terrific she's stuff, a, but she's, hard, hard to watch. She's on another planet. She's yeah. not here. She's, she's, she's totally checked out. It, every cell in her body wants to just run screaming down the street and she has to hold it together. And she does so poorly <laughs> as we're about to see. Oh, this scene is rough, but very funny. As Furio mentioned when he came into the Soprano house early on, ah, what's that smell? It's the it's the smell of heaven. They come into the apartment immediately. 
aromatic. Oh, what's what smells so good? Oh, of course, it's Meadow making the chicken cacciatore from whose recipe? Of course, Carmela's. So as Jordan mentioned, there's a push and pull here. Meadow, Meadow is leaving the nest in a pretty big way, but we'll remember where she came from. And unfortunately for Carmela, this has become a prison, her life. Yeah. So just looking at it from her perspective, especially why this dinner scene would rub her the road. First of all, she's very raw from what just happened. So that's, that's, that's a given. She's an exposed nerve right now. She's a, it's like before the dentist replaces your tooth, it's just a raw exposed nerve. First of all, are you making a fin joke? I am. I am. (laughs) He's going to be such a handsome dentist, isn't he? They often are. I've <laughs> Actually, often yeah, are. yeah, they often are. Is- Isabella was a beautiful dentistry student. That's right, Isabella. She sure. Wow, good catch, Paul. <laughs> the show is a thing for good-looking dentists. One of them is more my type. But enough raving about Finn. <laughs> <clears throat> we cut away for a second here to see little Polly and his his crew of misfits there trashing the restaurant painting a huge penis on the mural. I think it, I think it improved the mural. (laughs) (laughs) I would rather drink there. (laughs) Yeah. I'd rather drink there. Yeah. Yeah. That, that happens. And then we get to the actual dinner they're eating. I think Tony's being very charming here. Obviously his charm is mis misused on Carmela because she's just not into it at all. And it probably is annoying her deep down, but, I, I think had Carmela not been going through this whirlwind of earth shattering emotion, I think Tony was being quite on, like seeing Tony on like this and entertaining and cracking yeah. the jokes. And he's being very charming and likable here. He is. And this scene functions so well because we've had so many instances in the past of Tony really fucking things up when he's around Meadows friends or around AJ and AJ's friends, right? Saying the wrong Mm -hmm. thing. Something's off color. Something he said is taken the wrong way, even when he intends it to be taken the wrong way, right? A negative experience. So as a viewer, we're kind of going in like, oh, no, what is Tony going to say? And he's going to offend these kids. No, nothing. Actually, he's so charming. And it's Carmela for once that is the one who is uh, very prickly and making them uneasy. Yeah. I'm sure you guys noticed that in between these sequences at, that add up to the whole Sunday dinner, both AJ and Tony uh, embarrass Meadow a bit in moments, maybe even like mortify her. But that's all forgotten and forgiven pretty quickly because a it's not a big deal generally what they said or some dumb homophobic joke and b because it's kind of to be expected from them but carmela is getting aggressive what's this about meadow doesn't understand she really doesn't get it i think it's part of why she ends up lashing out with so much anger yeah very well said alex is a descendant from spanish royalty Colin is, uh, I believe, a military brat, been all over the world, which Carmilla marvels uh, at. Finn. Finn has is that uh, Finn? Is a Finn. Finn is a Navy brat who uh, lived his first years in Japan and then moved all over the world. Colin, we're led to believe uh, he's from Ohio or something, yeah. just kind of representative of just like rich white people who attend these Ivy League universities. That's yeah. all. And he makes a mean mac and cheese. Right. And his family had some home someplace rather wealthy or something like that. I, don't I, know. I do yeah. like this thread, this under thread where Tony 
doesn't understand that he's living there, but Finn isn't. And then he may, he does, he does make one faux pas comment, but Colin takes it very well. He's when they're talking about the Billy Bud thing and it's a gay book, no offense. And he says, Oh, I'm not gay. You're not. No, <laughs> but he, he brushes that off pretty well. Yeah. Takes it in stride. Yeah. Being that we've gotten to this scene. Yeah. And, let's talk about it. Let's yeah, break and, it down. Sure. And Paul is the Billy Bud fan here. Paul, uh, I asked this in the, in the, nicest way i can paul is this a gay book is this who's got the right interpretation here yeah it's it's pretty gay <laughs> <laughs> um I'll, I'll say a couple things i don't want to test your patience or the patience of our audience um billy bud uh there's a lot of interpretations about the book one of them of course decidedly homoerotic what they're talking about uh leslie fielder the scholar that they mentioned is a real guy he died in 2003. He was from Newark, New Jersey, in fact. Uh, let no one say the Garden State is uncultured. Produced this guy who wow. talked about lots of things in literature. I-, I will say, I think the homoerotic reading, it doesn't come out of nowhere. I noticed it in the book. I felt some presence of it, my own view, even though we have to speculate because it was the 19th century. We don't know a lot of stuff about the author's life, Melville, at least what was personal. Um if I can be forgiven this pun, I think that shadow came across his bow in his life. I will say that. (laughs) But that's not the only reading. I'll share another one in a moment. I think what's fun is that what complicates it, I do think the kids have the right reading, but they're so fucking obnoxious, particularly Meadow in the way that she's talking down to her mother. I don't like that. Of course, Carmela has no reading of the book. She like saw the movie, even though Terrence Stamp was in Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Um, oh, yeah. absolutely murderous line. So funny. And, and, and I also want to point out, I'm not to interrupt you, Paul, hold on to your thought, but I also want to point out that this is also at a time in our culture when there was a lot of gay stuff pervading the television market. This is like queer eye for the straight guy had just come out. Will and grace was really popular. And there were a contingent of old, mostly old school Catholic folks like Carmela who are just like, what is all this gay stuff on TV now? Right. And as Seinfeld would say, not that there's anything wrong with that, but, <laughs> but continue. But but that, that that also adds to the cultural context of Carmela's comments here. But continue, Paul. Yes. Um, I think another interesting way, of course, it's not really about Billy Bud. It's about the emotions that Carmela is going through. And of course, what she's saying, in effect, is that this under this underground forbidden love story does not exist. But of course, we know it exists. It exists for her. She's just denying it. Um, she's saying that Billy, the story in Billy Budd does not contain this misdirected anger and frustration. But she is enacting Billy Budd with Meadow. What happens in Billy Budd, I'll quickly say, is that this guy Claggart, maybe because of this forbidden love, ends up accusing Billy Budd, the kid, the handsome sailor, is the subtitle of the book, of mutiny. Billy Budd, in his rage and frustration, I guess at being falsely accused, strikes out and hits Claggart in the face. And in a sort of unlucky blow, Claggart falls to the ground and hits his head and dies. And Billy Budd is executed on the deck of the ship. I think that's what happens. Um, Meadow gets this misdirected anger and does a death blow at her mother in the plaza and just absolutely emotionally devastates her. It's all misdirected, but the damage is done. That's, mm-hmm. That would be my reading of what happens here. I'll also say briefly, here's another reading of Billy Budd, just mine. Uh, about 10 years before Melville himself died, uh, his son suicided 
He shot himself in the family home. Melville found his body. I don't think Melville ever recovered. How could you? He kind of went into hermitage after that, didn't write much, apparently didn't work, didn't go out. He died 10 years later, and some years after he died, they went through one of his trunks and found an unfinished book. That's Billy Budd. So he wrote this one book after his son died. And some people, and I'm one of them, believe that one of the things Melville was probably dealing with was the image of Laggard as one father figure who's cruel and dismissive, and the captain who's kind and caring and tries to help Billy Budd, but fails. And into this reading, I'd introduce this complicated relationship between a mother and a daughter and what you try to do for your children, but also can have an anger and resentment at them. So wow. that's where Billy Budd would come in for me. That would just be my reading. Awesome. Thank, thank you, you, Paul. Yeah, Paul, thank you for that. That's great. And I have nothing to add. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of the things that I think also frustrates Carmela in this dinner is maybe it just frustrated me. <laughs> I don't know. Is uh, Paul mentioned that these folks are speaking in such a way that it is very pretentious, right? Very annoying. Um, everyone is kind of showing off a little bit, whether they mean to or not. It reminded me of Devin Pillsbury, right? Yeah. Uh, who does not even realize her privilege. But we have descended from royalty. We have extraordinarily wealthy uh, white kid, probably white Anglo-Saxon Protestant kid, right? We have Finn, who's a Navy brat, who's traveled the world and has wealth as well. Again, it's a Sopranos moment where the Sopranos are the bottom of the ladder, you know, and it it uh, it, it it's uncomfortable to watch. So it, it's like that. there's that layer too. And even though they might be right about their interpretation of Billy Budd, as Paul said, they're being very obnoxious about it. You know, there is a way to gently correct. Mm. Yeah, like Meadows just so eager to prove that her education is paying off. And of course, that's the education she's receiving and the opportunities it's going to provide Meadow, while Meadow can also do what Carmela can do, which is entertain and create a lovely dinner. Just, again, it's like, shoving Carmela's face into it even further. Yeah, and that's some of the outside irony of this episode is that the Sopranos, Tony and Carmela, have always wanted the best for Meadow, but in so doing, like, the best for Meadow is not them. Mm. Like The best for Meadow is not their own family, so this yeah. is going to be, I would imagine, a continuing source of pain for both of them, but especially Carmela. Yeah, and it's tough because it does what Sopranos does. I was, I found myself in a situation. Carmela is saying things in a way that could be interpreted as bigoted and, and hateful, but also I see where she, I, I understand where it's coming from. So it's hard for me to judge her for it. You know what I mean? That's why this show is so good because it'll always complicate something that dumb people treat on the surface. And then, you know, it's it, so I, fe I really felt for her here, even though she was saying things that in a vacuum are kind of kind of not not nice at, at the very least. Perhaps. Sure. Yeah. But but even in, you know, let's not take this too far. But I mean, we all agree, I think that many times on the left, especially there is this condescension. Right. Mm. That somehow folks that have left aligned politics or people who consider themselves like part of the intelligentsia, right, just kind of like look down on everyone mm. and don't try to see the nuance in their views. They only kind of blanketly label it as, well, that is just bigoted. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah. But if Carmela had the intelligence to kind of express what she was saying a little bit better and in better context, I think she could have been understood, but it's not going to happen at this dinner. No, certainly not. Cut to Paulie and Syl in the back of the Bing. Paulie's upset that Paulie Jr. was sent to trash the restaurant. Paulie, of course, been secretly courted by Johnny Sack. Paulie is griping about it. He feels left out of the loop. And Silvio does something interesting here. These guys go back a ways. Says, well, now that you mention it, I shouldn't be saying this, but in the offers to go, quote, off the record for Paulie here. Your attitude lately. Some people are starting to wonder where your heart is. What people? Tony? He, so, <laughs> I really like this exchange about Albert Barisi, the guy who repeats himself. Paulie <laughs> says, fuck that fucking parakeet. I got a relationship, <laughs> I got a relationship with Tony Albert and never have. Uh, and I love Silvio's line, you're, you know, because it just it cuts right to the quick. You're only as good as your last envelope. You know that. And just in case anyone had any illusions that this was, in fact, a family family, it's not. It's a business. And uh, Paulie gives uh, the line that we titled our episode after, which is friendships go in peaks and valleys. Right now, Tony and I are in a valley. Soon we'll be in a peak. Friendships, relationships marriages businesses Mm. any relationship in your life this rule does apply peaks and valleys is true of everything in many ways it's inevitable and it's beyond your control but the best parts of life the best use of grace we have is to try to get through the valleys right um this episode has everyone in a valley uh that's that's why i chose it or chose to highlight this particular phrase for an episode title because it's like we are in the dark place in so many of these relationships. We're all in the valley. We have to hope that like Polly, we can get out of it, but hopefully not like Polly, we don't choose the most gruesome course to do so. <laughs> yes. One thing about this scene, uh, we'll come back to Silvio's line. You're only as good, or I would offer as bad as your last envelope. I mean, in terms of what you're willing to do for it to get back yep. in Tony's good graces. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. Uh, and again, this passive-aggressive thing is now boiling over, finally. And Polly has the nerve to say to Silvio, you're a wormy cocksucker from the guy who <laughs> has been betraying the family for much of this season and will do felony murder for petty robbery at the end of this episode. But, I mean, I guess they're all wormy cocksuckers in their own way. As Chris said, mm. this is a business. This ain't sentimental. Yep, right. They get out at each other. Uh, the tension ratchets up. They both stand up, get in each other's face. This shit all started with that Russian prick when <laughs> Silvio was sick and Paulie had to go pick up the envelope. And he's not entirely wrong. But right. uh, nice callback to uh, Pine Barrens. Yep. Mm-hmm. yep. Nobody knows what the future holds, my friend. And Paulie thinks he has an ace in the hole that we find out later he does not, in fact, have. But the the arrogance is dripping off of Paulie in that line as if underneath he's saying hey you could be working for me one day buddy boy and storms out of the back we'll see where this all goes shortly <laughs> right it's a great scene <laughs> i think silvio really thought he was helping his friend it just 
goes yeah. fuck up, you know? Yeah. You know, he really tried with Pauly, but Pauly just wasn't even... right. Just no, worry just... about how you're fucking perceived. <laughs> right. Pauly's just, he's an asshole. What are you going to do? Silvio gives one of the best, by the way, I, there are compilations of all of the O's and A's and O's and all the vowel sounds. Oh, this is, this is an all timer. This, this is, this is one of the big ones here. When Silvio stands up, Oh, I'm just telling you how you're being <laughs> fucking perceived. Great job here. He's Silvio really is responsible for a lot of the good ones. Oh yeah. Johnny and Carmine, Johnny knows where this is going. So how do you want to respond? I haven't wanted to do this, but it's got to be snuffs out a cigarette. Call the union. Yeah, which uh, I I felt stupid. I actually thought that meant like we're going to see if we can put the hit out on Tony. That's what I thought. I, 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 in my head, I didn't think of the Esplanade. I don't know why. I thought like, oh, cigarette out, call the union meant like, let me get the people together. I have to ask for permission to kill Tony Soprano, which mm. then I, I, I thought later when you realize what it is, like he wouldn't need that kind of permission. He's already the boss. Uh, mm. You know, it was just, it was, I don't know. It, yeah, it seems well. very serious, but it is serious. Yeah. It's, it's a good point though, Jordan, isn't it? Because that might be what I would expect of this escalating. Right. Instead, yeah, instead, this is one mob boss ratting out another one. Yeah. How passive aggressive can it get? Um, right. So it does go in this different direction, which is interesting. Frankly, sir, I'm, I'm disgusted. Yeah. Yeah. That seems very funny. right. And in a way, this is also the other kind of pissing contest, right? It's like, none of these guys are really going for the throat. They're just trying to say like, well, what if I did this? Well, what if I did this? Well, what if I did this? And it's getting pettier and pettier. But now as of the Esplanade, it's starting to really cost people money. This is their bread and butter. Mm hmm. Yeah, they're fucking with each other in increasingly costly ways. Carm is having lunch with Rosalie. Rosalie is the only person on earth besides Carmela who knows what's going on here. And she sounds again, I hate to use this analogy here, but she sounds like a, a, a girl Meadows age. No call, no note, nothing. She's just heartbroken. It's, it's like teenage heartbreak. Ro is trying to be very practical. Carmela describes feeling punched in the stomach when she heard he left. Ro says, give it time, eight months, you'll forget about him. Carmel says, I don't know if I can, and runs off crying. So this ain't getting better anytime soon, that's for sure. Then this next scene with Polly taking the ladies out for lunch. They probably saw an, or, or dinner, early dinner. They probably saw a nice matinee of the producers. <laughs> Chris, the, the ravening of the free stuff on the table <laughs> between the four of them. Cause Paulie also does it. I was like, this is gr just great. Yeah. Just great. Yeah. This is pure comedy. The, the sugar packs, the fucking, the butters, the bread. <laughs> I take these for my son. Yeah. yeah. And uh pack loading up their bags. Paulie <laughs> demanding the Parker house rolls, wrap these up. Cellophane. <laughs> <laughs> They were not. They were for the table. <laughs> Minnie's very funny. I like this actress. It's a shame we lose her very soon. <laughs> it, it, I, it's a shame, but what a scene that is too. But yeah, this this scene in the I don't know the dinette or wherever the hell they are. Very fun, and yep. I just it played for laughs. So fun, yep. and 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 they drop they dropped the crucial bit of information, which is that Min's husband did very well yes. selling a precision cutlery. You still keep your money under the mattress. She doesn't even have a save it checkings account. So she doesn't keep her money in a bank. It's somewhere in the house. Paulie's ears are perked. There he you does, go. He doesn't jump on it right away because he doesn't feel he has to. He's beyond the point where he has to feel like he's being the top fucking earner every second, as he told Silvio. But uh, the guy like Paulie, that's 
that's lodged somewhere in the filing cabinet just in case right but paulie's file cabinet is just one drawer <laughs> it is just you know it's like his mind goes through a thousand permutations these guys can't help themselves yeah so moving on there we uh anyone who's been around new york city long enough has seen this big inflatable rat the construction's being shut down the union's coming in this site yeah. it, it, we have it we have it on long island too for the same reason yep yeah. yep this guy comes in we have uh they're undoc they're what does he say there's non non-union workers at the site He's at, frankly, sir, I'm shocked and appalled. And the, the, the constructor was like, come on, are you fucking kidding, pal? Like, are you, everyone knows what's going on here. Are you serious? And this yeah. guy By the just, way, you you knew this scene was going to go belly up because the first shot of the scene is like Patsy Parisi just like looking happy, just yeah. looking up at the sun, listening to his music, whatever he's doing. And I'm like, no one in Soprano world gets to be this happy for an entire scene. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I love the mob guys see what's going on. They get up like, oh. Okay, we got to go. This is not good. And the big Esplanade, the multi-million dollar project that was being headed up by Ralph Cifaretto, it's going to rake in all kinds of cash for these construction firms and for the mobs and the unions. It's uh, these no-show jobs. Gone. Gone in a, in a fo- with a phone call from Carmine Lupertazzi. Again, for a, a people, there are, we've talked about this. There's a segment of the audience that wants to see somebody get whacked, wants to see a stylistic hit, wants to see people get beat up and thrown around. This is in some ways anticlimactic, but believable because this is the mob can't just go out and kill each other. Guns are blazing every time something goes wrong. And this is really going to fuck with Tony's pocketbook. And look, they Carmine mentions earlier. It's not I told you when, when Carmine Jr. calls it a family or, or Johnny says whatever it is is a boss told you it's not a family it's a glorified crew that's important line from carmine there it's first of all it's how new york sees jersey they're just they're another glory it's like tony's might as well just be another capo rather than the boss of a separate family so that expresses the size difference between the two operations which lets us know that this esplanade shutting down is going to be much worse for tony than it is for carmine Sure, though, and it's alluded to later, this is kind of a Pyrrhic victory for Carmine because he also loses money if this thing is not in operation. So it's going to be about who is willing to go longer without that money. Mm. But I guess the idea is that New York can go longer. Mm. Very disturbing scene. Another scene where the mob is doing their thing covertly, passive-aggressively. Eugene Ponacorvo encounters this gentleman who they spotted on the jury gets him must have they must have found a way to tail him or something they get him buying something at a convenience store and eugene just drops the yeah that mob thing you're a jury taking part in a civic duty we should all take part in and i know you'll do we know you'll do the right thing real real smiley stuff reminded me a little bit of what bobby did to that union guy a couple episodes ago when he was uh recovering from his grieving Mm -hmm. just classic like I'm going to threaten you without threatening you. Just yeah. Married guy, two kids. Our audience will remember when we discussed Steven's uh, episode seven, watching too much television, uh, Jordan did a great breakdown of the story in which our politics are corrupt or they've been corrupted by these guys. And at the end of this, the shot has the, the juror who's been threatened and the American flag in the background. Mm. So once again, like our jurisprudence is not safe from these guys yeah (laughs) you know it's terrible 
Yeah, these these scenes always feel the worst to me. Like I, even when it was just you know nice Bacala threatening the the union guy before the election. Uh, these scenes feel the worst because you see how ordinary people get hurt uh, by these guys, right? It's almost like fair game. It's like, oh, yeah, mob guys killing mob guys. Oh, you know, business as usual. But then it's like, this guy was selected for jury duty, and, you know, he's just trying to do his duty, and you're going to kill his family. Like, that's <laughs> that's that sucks. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's sad, and you get the look on his face. I wrote point taken. I think he he got the hint. Oh, yeah. No, no doubt. He holds his son <laughs> close to him. You know, I, I, we got it. Yep. Carmela's crying in the bathroom. Devastating. She can't let it go. She's probably been crying all day. Meadow calls. Carmela musters whatever strength she can to get through this call without bursting into tears. She brings up something that was mentioned in the pilot when Carmela waved the little white gloves at Meadow and she was pouting about her. By the way, another ski trip. Another uh, trip in that episode centered around the Eloise thing. So that's a nice little callback to the pilot episode. But uh, she calls and says, hey, let's do it. It's almost my birthday. Let's do our tradition. Tea under Eloise's portrait. That's so sweet. They make plans. Carmela gets a little snippy when Meadow asks why she would take the GW to get to Midtown. I know how to get to the city, Med. Okay, that'll come back in a few minutes. They hang up. They make the plan. Tony, Vito, and Silvio are in the back of the Bing following up. They offer to torch a bunch of his Carmine cement trucks, and Tony makes the call. No retaliation, counter-retaliation. Makes it known that the play is going to be they're going to wait. It's going to hurt us, T. It's going to hurt us a lot. It's going to hurt him, too. So now they're playing essentially financial chicken with this Esplanade to see who caves first. Meanwhile, probably hundreds of union workers will not get paid. Because yes. these guys can't come to terms. Uh, mm-hmm. So again, this is this is not without cost to the American people. I, I, it's not emphasized in the episode, but that is what that means. These this guys season, don't get paid if they don't work. Yeah, this season more than any other, uh, perhaps with the exception of two, the whole Davy Scatino thing, really has done an excellent job illustrating the ripple effect of what these guys do on on the the hardworking Americans, the people who aren't involved in this this thing of ours. Carmela and Meadow, let's talk about this scene. They're having the tea under the portrait. Carmela already coming in snippy. I've used that word before, but she's giving all these passive aggressive comments. She feels the jealousy and the fact that Meadow came on very strong about the Billy Bud thing. She brings up, since you're an expert on driving directions and literature, takes a sip with the glove. (laughs) Carm's being very petty and jealous here. And it 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 brings out the worst in Meadow. She then says, Are you jealous because you and dad are middle-aged? <laughs> jealous, yes, wrong reason, but uh, ouch, watch it, young lady. And Carmela brings up her your friend the princess, but she found us very amusing. Yeah, it's the it's the bungalow bar thing. Yeah, she's yep. she's kind of the same thing. Yeah. And Meadow goes for the jugular here with this next bit. Too hard, Med. Too hard. Yeah. She, uh, you wanted me to go to an Ivy League school. These are the kind of people who go there. She says, maybe I should go to Montclair State and drop out like you did. Oof. Yeah. Right for the throat. Yeah. Uh, great scene. Easy to read. Listen, I might not have read Billy Bud, but I, I do know Eloise. <laughs> not to brag. <laughs> Eloise is a story of a little girl who has all sorts of adventures by herself in the Plaza Hotel. 
uh, which is why that portrait is there. And actually, this tradition of having tea under Eloise's portrait is a tradition shared by many New Yorkers and I guess folks from New Jersey as well. This is a popular mother-daughter thing to do. Uh, it's very sweet that the show included it. Eloise is content to stay in her own little world, the world of the hotel. Meadow is no longer content to do that. So perhaps symbolically having Eloise there with them is Meadow kind of bucking the traditions of her family, the expectations of her parentage that she's going to stay in this little world that they made for them, made for him, uh, made for her rather. Uh, but she, she's not going to do that. It's why she won't wear the gloves. You know, she does not want to masquerade as the little girl anymore who's going to be safe in their castle forever. She's out of the castle. She's out of the hotel. She does not want to come back. But we know that Carmela is so raw and hurting in this scene. And we also know that Meadow has this tendency to search and to grill and to poke and to prod until she figures out eventually what is going on. Um, but it is really unfortunate to see this relationship, maybe not disintegrating, but changing in a way that's uncomfortable. Mm. Well said. I agree. And Meadow goes at it too hard. I think she wanted to draw blood and did. Painful scene in a lot of ways. Great elocution, Jordan, on Eloise. I don't, I did not know very much about it, looked it up because they, I mean, they chose it as the title for this episode. It's come up a couple times on the show. Wonderful opening shot in this scene that shows the harp in the foreground and the portrait of Eloise in the background and this world, the pampered world. It looks like Eloise is encaged. And this world that has grown meadow for Carmela has become a prison. And this, ten this tension between them, mm. uh, it, I agree with Jordan, it's rough. And I do get the feeling as I watch it that it's tough to come back from. The one thing that does make me a bit happy in watching this episode is maybe once again, not unlike, say, season two, episode three, Meadow begins this process of holding herself to an account of at the very least understanding her mother better. No, your mother is not a saint or a hero. She's a human being, she's got flaws, but Meadow begins to understand. You guys tackled that so well. I wanna talk about something different in this scene, but we hear all over how good of a set this was to work on from anyone who's been near it, anyone who's ever worked on the show. And a story of Edie Falco that I heard once, there was a guy who was giving a tour, a bus tour of the Sopranos locations for many years. I, I've been, I'd been on the tour several times back when it was running regularly. I think they still do it on occasion, but they probably, they used to do it every weekend back when the show was actually on. It was that busy. Twice on Sundays, you know, it was like a real busy tour bus thing. And the guy who ran the tour was an actor. And he is in this scene as the waiter who brings them their cookies. And Edie Falco, he told this story on the tour, and I want to share it for those of you who haven't ever taken the tour or heard this story. Edie Falco kept addressing him when he would drop the cookies off. She would give him a line or a quick little question about something that he would have to respond to. And the reason she would do that is because that took the role from a something that got him pay as a background into a different pay structure. Once you speak on camera, union rules that's a different, that's no longer background. So she kept doing it. And even it was even told several times not to do that, but she was making sure that this guy got a little line in there and an extra payday. I don't know if it made the final cut. I didn't look for it when I watched it back this final time. They may have edited it out, 
but he got a bump in credit and payday because Edie Falco was just being generous and wanted to. Good for her. Yeah. I I think that's just such, and you hear about these class act stories from her about her and James Gandolfini all the time, Mm -hmm. but how they looked out for the other actors on the show. And as an actor myself, I think that is just one of the coolest things. She's so wonderful. That's great. And then on top of it, just did really excellent fucking work herself in this scene, by the way. Yes. Uh, The follow-up, to her work on The Sopranos was a Showtime show called Nurse Jackie. Yeah. Uh, if our audience hasn't, if you guys haven't seen it, I, I would recommend it very highly. And she was solidly the lead on that show. And that was really her set, as I understand. I've heard many stories, they're general, but she was apparently painstaking in taking care of the other actors um, on that set. And even if you were an actor and you were treating another actor with disrespect, you would hear from Edie Falco no thank you so that (laughs) that was like a thing that uh, another aspect of admiration that i have for her they trade more barbs back and forth carmel is deeply wounded by this conversation except we know that won't happen because you'll need money in a week just just bad this ends very badly cut to paulie at a wedding (laughs) he sees carmine around the room i just love i wish i could have Tony Sirico walking around in that suit at, at a wedding and just bump into him like this. Just the way he, he just looked great in the scene. He looked so much like Paulie. And he sees Carmine. Oh, okay. I'm going to go over and talk to Carmine. Pulls up uh, or go, leans over, introduces, uh, says, Hey, how you, Carmine, how you doing? Yeah. What are you doing here? I'm a guest. My housekeeper's daughter. And Paulie mentions that the groom's dad is his third cousin. So some odd, <laughs> some very strange, very distant connection brought them to the same. How, how, how big is this wedding? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Paulie, Paulie from Jersey. And Carmine's looking at him like, what? I don't know who you, your, your father got hit by that trolley. <laughs> Johnny, talk to you about me, right? Johnny, nope. jo- Johnny sack. Talk to me about no, what he did not. And the look on Paulie's face when he realizes how badly he's been played for a year by Johnny Sack mm-hmm. or more. He's been soaked for information. Paul, Johnny even said in, back in season three when they have that little conversation in the finale in the parking lot outside Vesuvio, Carmine asks about you. Give him my regards, Paulie says. Oh, this had to have hurt real bad. And he goes into the uh, talk about a valley he goes into the bathroom. I love that shot of him just staring at himself like he's certainly uh, examining how he's being perceived now. He doesn't have his ace card. He doesn't have his trump card, his ace in the hole. He needs to do something badly right now. <laughs> uh, earlier in that scene, the talk about scene with Furio and Carmela, they were talking still about design and how his uh, mother didn't like the idea of the bathroom mirror that was too big uh, because Americans apparently are too self-absorbed and they spent too much time looking at themselves. Mm. And here's Polly staring dumbfounded <laughs> into the mirror. And it does invite the question of what will this self-reflection benefit yeah. and who will it benefit? The uh, Via Appia hair salon postcard in the mail that Carmela, her heart leaps out of her chest, might as well have just sent salt, a big bucket of salt, to pour all over herself because that gutted her yet again. Everything that happens to her, this episode is just ripping at her flesh. It's a death by a thousand cuts. It really is. Yeah. Tony asks about the lunch. Carmela 
throws water on it went went terrible now that you ask she's going to go to northwestern with finn and tony says why would she want to go there and carmel's response i don't know tony the way i feel right now if i never saw her again it would be too soon and tony's just like oh how can you say that she's her joints are aching she's not feeling well something is she, she's manifesting physical symptoms now mm -hmm. and tony pushes back a little bit but then carmela snaps off so don't ask if you don't care about the answer and tony's mm -hmm. like tony tony backs off he knows this is a good time to back off and he says i don't have problems of my own my one of my key guys disappeared to naples for christ's sake oh tony Slash, another right. cut yeah just they just keep the hits keep coming for carmela here yeah, I noticed at the end of the scene, too, he like mostly finished what was on his plate. I don't know, a sandwich, olive, something. And he doesn't even like throw out his garbage. He just throws his fucking plate on the counter, leaving it for her to clean up. Just like the mounting in gratitude, you know? Yeah. AJ's reading Death in Venice. Meadow comes in. Let me tell you, man, I teach 10th <laughs> grade English. Uh, so I teach the same level of English that AJ is at. We assign bullshit. AJ is reading <laughs> truly great stuff. He's reading great German literature. He's reading Billy Budd. We assign crap now. We really do. I don't know if it's just falling education standards or if it's just my school, but wow. I mean, I wish I could take some of the stuff that he's reading. Oh, man. And uh, that one's definitely gay. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, uh, hey, you know, this Mr. Wegler guy, he must be something special. Real special English teacher. Wonder if we'll find out more about him at some point. Moving on here. I like this scene a lot. We don't get many scenes between the siblings, just the siblings. So when they have a scene, it feels special. And I like the chemistry these two have. They basically grew up together. I mean, you have to imagine that's a special experience, being the two kids on the Soprano set, growing up as actors that way. So these two have a really nice chemistry. I like this little scene where Meadows digging a little bit and AJ starts giving her the, the gossip on the trips to the house and Furio. She used to drag me along. It was really a pain in the ass. He said, I really like his delivery there. And uh, as Meadow digs a little deeper, AJ lets out this uh, really grotesque fart meetings over. <laughs> and Meadow, it's a really good fart. It was yes. good. Yep, he arches the hips real nicely. He did a great job. I, I give that a 9 out of 10, AJ. Very good. That's a 9. That is a 9. Yeah, that's a 9 out of 10 fart. Classic. Classic stuff. Drive your sister right out of there. Very good. So Meadow, <laughs> Meadow bails, but she got she got some valuable information here. Cut to this scene. I know you've been dying to talk about it, Jordan. Polly robbing Minnie. <laughs> digging around frantically under the bed under the mattress mini matron is home yep her car wasn't there it's in the shop yeah so it's <laughs> uh, it's classic sopranos it is simultaneously the most gruesome and and horrifying scene because it's it's the it's the murder cold-blooded murder <laughs> of an old woman senseless senseless cold-blooded murder but also it is extraordinarily funny in a way that only the Sopranos can be in a way that I think Scorsese would be proud of. Right. Yeah. A really great scene. And just, I love this actor that plays Min Matrone. I thought she did a nice job with this. It's actually a hard scene to play. Yeah. Um, very funny. Very funny. And um, a classic scene. I, I really couldn't believe what was happening as I was watching it. Yeah. Yeah. It was something it's shot really well. It's acted really well. I liked it. Paulie tries to justify him being there. He has all these excuses ready. 
And what's funny about it too is in my mind's eye, I almost saw these two characters 40 years ago. Yes. Like you saw a little the kid same way. breaking right. into the house and a slightly something from her pocketbook or something. Yeah. She's going to call his mother. You know what I mean? Yep. Except it ends in a way that is very unchildlike and very right. un- uninnocent. And I also love that for any, I think any other character, for any other character other than Polly, this would be a significant moment of character development, right? <laughs> I can't believe I murdered an old woman and took some money to give to Tony to enrich myself as well. But for Polly, it's just like, yeah, something else happened. Yeah, it's yeah. another day at yeah, the he office. Just, he killed some old woman. And uh, and then he's very nonchalant about it in the next scene when we see him. You know, it, it's amazing. Like, he doesn't care. He has no lasting trauma, I think, from anything in his life. Yeah. Yeah. That's he is, funny. in some ways, he's sort of the antithesis of Tony, right? Because Tony, even though he is sociopathic, right, still internalizes these things. He dreams about these things. He's done these bad things he's done to people. He doesn't reflect on them in maybe the way he should, but... He's an intelligent person with a real soul. Paulie just like, yeah, he, I mean, he does stuff. I mean, <laughs> as he said himself, you know, I was I was in the army for a while. And I was in the can. And it's just it's that simplicity. Yeah, it, it, it is kind of what makes Paulie sort of the guy that can just keep on going, regardless of whether he's been betrayed by Johnny Sack or he's done some time in jail. This guy's just the energizer fucking bunny because the things don't bother him this way. I'm going to reference another great HBO drama, The Wire here, because I actually just rewatched the whole thing recently. Every gangster has to have an underling that can, as they say in that show, take the years. And what I mean by that is when your organization is under fire from feds or from outside gangsters, whatever, you have one lieutenant, one captain, one person right underneath you if you're the top guy that will go to prison and do the fucking time because that's what's expected of him and they can handle it. They're not like in prison, like, oh, I threw my life away. They're just like, yep, here I am. I'm in prison. I'm going to be the king of prison. In The Wire, it's Weebay. It's Chris Partlow. It's those people who are just underneath the top guy. They're just like, oh, I have this hardcore motherfucker is the last one you'd want to see at your front door. And he'll take 20 years, no problem. As Paulie himself says, uh, when he's talking about purgatory, a couple thousand <laughs> years, do that standing on his head. So yeah. you're, you're absolutely right. Paulie, things just happen to him. He does mm-hmm. things and he moves on. Here I am, a half a wise guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paulie's sense of filial duty is, to Jordan's point, as much of a put up job as, as anything else. His duty is to the bottom line. I guess he's got to bring in those envelopes. And I agree with what Jordan said. It's this perfect Sopranos-esque fusion that to the end, this character Min Matrone is not likable. But it also underlines this scene that what Polly is, and I think what a lot of the guys are, which is just common thieves. That's of course, think of why Polly is likely going to get away with this murder because it doesn't have any of the hallmarks of mob stuff. It looks like a robbery gone bad into felony murder which is what it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to remember sometimes as much as we romanticize these characters, as much as the show really loves them. Uh, they're crooks. They're, they're just fucking crooks. Yeah. Paulie shows up, all smiles, back of the bing. Hey, it is the skip. <laughs> you get the, the old, all of a sudden, it's right. night and Suddenly, dark. season one, Paulie has returned. Yes, exactly. Oh, yeah, he never had the New York thing. Oh, yep, here I am. Here's a nice, I know I've been uh, behind, this will catch us up kind of thing. Paulie, Tony's like, whoa, would you rob a bank? Just uh, doing his yeah, thing. Yeah, sort of, yeah. <laughs> 
Very good. Tony has to take a call. Paulie listens through the door, makes sure it's not somebody snitching on him. He's going to be a little paranoid probably for the next few weeks, but this is we Paulie's uh Paulie has realigned. That's great. Great scene here with Tony and Meadow. I really like this scene a lot. He's on sitting on the steps. First of all, it's just it's a part of their house in a place that they don't actually have many scenes that I like. It's just nice. I, I, I thought great. Just direct my director eye kicked in. Great use of levels. Tony on the stairs a little above her, but sitting down and Meadow having to come up. The angles they shot it at. There's just something really beautiful in the way the scene was constructed. Wonderful, wonderful job, uh, James Heyman. And yeah, they have this conversation. Tony is prodding her a little bit about Carmela and implies that it might be the change of life. I like that despite the fact that this is not going well for Tony right now, he has it in him to tell Meadow to take it easy on Carmela. She's going through a tough time right now. This is Tony. He doesn't have many moments at his best. This is probably Tony at his best in, in this particular moment in time. It's him just trying to be understanding. Yeah. Trying to have uh, Meadow go easy on her. He isn't correct in what he's saying exactly, but he right. does guess exactly that Carmela is unfulfilled. He just can't. And he even says, I know it's partly my fault. He just can't follow that all the way through. Yeah. And Meadow shows him a great kindness in this scene mm. because she's basically figured out exactly what's up with Furio. Meadow's yeah. smart, but she chooses to allow Tony to believe that it's just change of life, menopause, whatever. And uh, yeah, it's a it's a it's a great scene. Uh, I, I thought it was actually a good Tony scene as well as a yeah. good Meadow scene. Yeah. 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 Really wonderful work here. Uh, sign of the times rosie o'donnell the <laughs> rosie o'donnell had a, had a show on regular tv at the time we turn on rosie o'donnell it's all quote these women bitch about Eww. how does he say such things and still charm us gotta love him gotta love him but yeah meadow does a does him a great you said it jordan does him a wonderful kindness there and lets him go on believing that but you can see the trouble. You can see on her face that she's very troubled by what she's detecting when Tony finally gets up and goes. They they leave the shot on her. She's the last thing we see before we cut into the next scene. Yeah, part of me thought about Meadows' arc through the series to this point, and it's kind of like she really has started to let Tony off the hook in a way. Maybe off the hook is the wrong way to say it. I feel like Sometimes when we have a scene like this between Tony and Meadow, particularly this scene, it feels like, uh, of course, it's father and daughter and it's very loving. But it also feels like, you know, like when two old enemies have been fighting so long, it's like basically they're friends now. Mm -hmm. It kind of has that sort of resignation to it where it's just like I could attack him for like three or four things he said. But you know what? I, I kind of get it at this point, And these battles aren't winnable. How do we just move forward and keep going? But we aren't there with her and Carmela yet, which is interesting to me. Mm. Uh, just just an observation. I'm not um, really poking too hard here, but it's uh, it's interesting. Yeah. Great scene. Uh, another great one on one scene here to fur here with Tony and Johnny Sack. They're in Tony's suburban. Johnny is making it very clear. I like this line when Johnny's like, yeah, we've been friends a long time, Tony. You know, and Tony says, if you want to go down memory lane, take it into second gear. <laughs> very very clever <laughs> yeah i love that one yep i wish for carmine's sake he'd ease up you don't want to know how many of his decisions end up lightening my pockets you're a pragmatist as am i I'm telling you carmine won't bend and tony says and neither will i and then johnny makes his move 
this is very good. If uh, something were to happen to Carmine's health, God, if, you know, all of this unpleasantness would just go away. John Carmine's fine. Yeah, he's very healthy. Thank God. Call me. It steps out. John, big, big move from Johnny Boy here. This is this is a, a hit. This is this an ordered is, hit. Yes. Yeah. This is let's let's figure out how we're gonna get the, get Carmine. Who boy? Whoever lit this scene, I want to kiss them. Yes. Terrific. Mm. It's all in this half light, this ominous shadow. It's great. Um, again, we've been talking about how this episode is pretty passive aggressive and maybe saying things without saying them. Johnny is enacting what we complimented Carmine for earlier in the season. He asks for a hit without saying anything. So great ratcheting up here right at the end of the episode. Again, very much like the next beat, it's going to be a forward. Not so many answers, more questions that mean you're you're tu- you're tuning in. If you're watching this in 2002, you're not missing next week. You got to see what happens. Yeah. And great shout out on the lighting here, Paul. I, I actually wrote it down because it was so beautiful. That lingering sh- side shot of Tony as he's reflecting on what he's just heard and him making the revelation. Holy shit. As Johnny's the last bit of Johnny that you see just leaves all light as if he just goes into blackness. It's just lit very excellently. Very, very well done. Tony realizes what's been asked of him. This is big news and we're not going to get follow up this week. Tony's home early final scene here in the episode. It ends like many of the season four episodes on a quiet note in the soprano bedroom or bathroom. Devastating scene, devastating in its simple sadness, really, and the way these two actors play it. Tony's home early. Had Carmela been in a different frame of mind, a different place in time, she might have been happy to see him home, actually, in time to go to bed. Meadow left on her ski trip. She hates my guts. She doesn't hate your guts. She'll forget about it. She can do whatever she wants. And then... Tony drops her pull quote as Carmela turns to her side and he snuggles up behind her. She's just staring out into space, completely disconnected. This smart, beautiful, independent woman you created. Isn't that what you dream about? Yes. And that yes is spoken with a complete emotional flatness. Yeah. Yep. Thoughts on this scene and then final thoughts on Eloise. Uh, yeah, great, great final scene. Very sad. And, and Carmela's the A plot in this episode. So, uh, but, but what's interesting about the scene is that even though this is the conclusion of the A plot scene, in many ways, this scene feels like the wrap up for all of the scene threads in the episode. Mm. Um, this is them coming home to bed together. It's a short end to Tony's day, which I think is almost symbolic of like, Tony has kind of, I don't want to say gotten away with, but like the things that have been attacking him this season are ending kind of quietly for him. Now, obviously, a hit on a mob boss is not a quiet thing, but I mean to say we were going to be led to believe that people were going to be putting hits out on him, mm. not the other way around. Uh, so it actually puts him back into a position of power. It seems like he's going to be able to solve this whole Esplanade, uh, Carmine Lupertazzi uh, business uh, without any loss to himself. You know, the <laughs> the, the focus here, yeah, the Furio business, Furio is gone now. Uh, we are left with a Carmela who is grieving and totally unfulfilled and miserable. Nothing in her life that might have made her happy is making her happy. This is a, a amazing television because it's like it's kind of like nothing that I wanted, but now that I have it, it's everything I wanted. Mm. It's so much emotional fulfillment for me as an audience member. 
even though I'm not getting some big explosive penultimate episode. I do have to say this by way of final thoughts. Uh, I haven't watched, I, I had never seen this episode and I've never seen the episode that is next, which is, and I know we're a spoiler free podcast. Um, I've never seen this episode white caps, but I've, I've heard it talked about so often that I may, after we're done recording, just go watch it, even though we're not set up to record white caps for a bit, just because I want to see what happens next. Like in what, what I'm trying to say is that, <laughs> too too long already this episode didn't serve to lead us to a cliffhanger where you want to watch the next one right away it instead served us a really fulfilling meal of an episode that was its own thing but at the same time it was ratcheting up the tension the whole time yeah it was just quiet it was underneath everything else that is beautiful architecture because i actually can't wait to watch the next episode even though it didn't feed me the threads for it well said jordan uh, I'd like to start just by a little detail about this last scene. When Tony comes in, he says, what, what are you watching? Just making conversation. And Carmela says, how to marry a millionaire. So from the 50s with Marilyn Monroe, about three young women, they move into an apartment in Manhattan and try to get a man. They try to marry up. That's their, that's their goal in that time and of that culture. And that's precisely what, instead of fulfilling Carmela has left her in this bereft place, it seems, that culture, that code, that image, that goal. And then, yeah, this scene uh, ends up coming to rest. It's a little more quiet. Um, it's very hard. I'm, I'm gutted, honestly, by the emotional hollowness, as Jordan mentioned, of the S at the end and how down and really broken Carmela feels. And I chose the quote, for our pull quote, because of actually something I think that Jordan mentioned earlier, which is what the complexity of emotion that The Sopranos brings out and what they're willing to deal with. I think most parents, even the compromised ones on The Sopranos, love their kids and want their kids to do better. But a lot of parents, I'm sure, also who live vicariously through their kids growing up and going out in the world, reflect on their own regrets in life and what they've missed out on. And it's not easy to talk about that. It's not easy to depict it. But The Sopranos is really gutsy, and they do a great job with it. And so there's the, there's the shout-out, not only for Edie Falco, tremendous work, but also for Terry Winter and, and the whole the writer's room that made this particular episode. The word you guys used was elegant. Can't do any better than that. Hell yeah. I can't wait for the next episode for many reasons. It's one I've seen many times. It is, without spoilers, generally on the top list of everyone's maybe all-time series favorite at least in the top three or five it's a big one season four I, I, you guys closed the button on this episode so well i want to talk a little bit just about how this season has played out and we've talked about it even from the first few episodes that something felt a little different about this season and the way it's being constructed it's a little bit more serialized but to paul's credit this show is so gutsy and so risky they always are breaking their own formulas. They're always breaking their own rules. And to their, I don't want to say detriment, because the show is still wildly successful, critically acclaimed, and people still love it to this day. But season four was misunderstood by a wide swath of the fan base and perhaps disliked. That's because it, it feels not only different from other television shows, but different from everything that came before it in The Sopranos. It's incredibly ballsy as a creator 
to give an episode like this as a penultimate when you have episodes like Amor Fu and Knight in White Satin Armor as your penultimate episode. You have to have such trust in not only your storytelling and the team you're working with, the actors, the writers, but also in where you're going in that, yes, this is going to pay off. Stay with us, guys. Hang in there. This is worth it. And this has been such a uniquely constructed season. Season four, I get why it confused or didn't sit well with some people. But man, oh man, I have to just admire the gutsy storytelling here. And I am so excited to see how it all pays off and to talk about it with you gentlemen. Uh, so there it is. And that is Eloise. I am Chris D'Amato. I'm Paul Mancini. And I'm Jordan Hugh. And we are coming back with White Caps. I can't believe we're already done with season four, but it's going to be a doozy. Thank you so much to all of you. Can't wait to talk about it. Anticipate a longer episode than normal because White Caps itself is a longer episode. Thank you for being patient with us and in spending your time with us. And we'll see you next time. Got myself a gun. Uh,